0: The top military general in Sudan says he's committed to an eventual return to a civilian government as the Pentagon gets ready to evacuate Americans from that country. It's Friday, April 21st. This is WB WBWAR's Morning Edition. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, waiting for the Supreme Court's next move when it comes to the abortion pill Mifepristone. Also, U.S. officials say they've infiltrated a Mexican drug cartel that traffics fentanyl.
1: Bringing these Previously, untouchable princes of drugs to some kind of justice is a very good thing all the way around.
0: But the move isn't sitting well in Mexico and the sour.
2: The trees are producing a crop, the grass is producing a crop which is feeding the livestock.
0: We examine a streamlined way of farming taken up here in New England in response to climate change. Clouds give way to sun today, 50s on the coast, 70s well inland.
3: it's 701 now the news live from NPR news in Washington I'm Corva Coleman the state department is warning Americans in Sudan's capital Khartoum to stay indoors and off the roads because of fighting between warring factions as NPR's Jackie Northam reports, the warning comes as the Pentagon is preparing U.S. troops in the region for a possible evacuation of U.S. embassy personnel.
4: State Department spokesperson Vedant Patel says all personnel at the U.S. embassy in Khartoum are believed safe and accounted for. Other American government officials spread across the city are being told to shelter in place. Patel indicated heavy fighting around the capital and at the airport makes planning an evacuation for American diplomats and citizens difficult.
1: Due to the unfortunate and uncertain and very fluid security situation in Khartoum and again because of the closure of the airport, uh, it's not safe to undertake uh, a US government coordinated evacuation of private American citizens at this time.
4: Roughly 19,000 US citizens are
3: believed to be in Sudan. Jackie Northam, NPR News. The U.S. Supreme Court has set tonight at midnight as a deadline to respond to cases involving a common abortion medication. The Biden administration is appealing lower court orders that would restrict or block the use of mifepristone. Anti-abortion activists say the FDA should not have approved the medication. The U.S. Government Accountability Office has removed the 2020 census from its list of high-risk government projects. As NPR's Hansi Lo Wang explains, the Census Bureau has not yet finished
5: releasing results from the last national headcount. The pandemic, the Trump administration's interference, and new privacy protections have slowed the rollout of 2020 Census data. But the Government Accountability Office no longer deems the 2020 Census a high-risk project that's vulnerable to waste, fraud, and mismanagement. That's because the Census Bureau has taken steps to correct IT issues, improve public outreach, and monitor costs. At a hearing, Democratic Senator Gary Peters of Michigan asked Comptroller General Gene Dodaro if the GAO will commit to watching the bureau.
2: Even though it's off this list, it's still going to require some pretty close oversight.
5: Absolutely. A 2030 census plan is expected next year. Hansi Luang, NPR News.
3: Oklahoma Governor Kevin Stitt has declared states of emergency in five Oklahoma counties. That follows this week's tornadoes that crashed through the central part of the state, killing three people there's been substantial damage. Shawnee is a suburb of Oklahoma City. Shawnee Mayor Ed Bolt says damage was heavy in his city too, but there were no fatalities.
6: We are so, so fortunate. Um, We
7: all got through it uh, and we're still here to talk about it.
3: Governor Stitt says there has been extensive damage to power lines in Oklahoma. The tracking site, poweroutage.us, says more than 11,000 Oklahoma customers still don't have electricity. This is NPR.
0: From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoik. The mayor of Newton wants to meet with members of a running group created to encourage runners of color. The group says it was discriminated against by Newton police during Monday's Boston Marathon. Group members were cheering runners on when police on bicycles came between them and the course. Newton police say they were called to respond to people walking on the course. Mayor Ruth Ann Fuller says she's looking forward to learning about what happened and how the city can respond better in the future. The MBTA plans to tap into its budget reserves for the ne- next fiscal year. The T will use over $260 million of savings to fund the upcoming budget. The transit agency says the money is needed to cover a budget gap caused by ridership not returning yet to pre-pandemic levels. T officials warn the system could have an issue with future budgets if it keeps relying on savings. Public health officials in Worcester say a New York City facility aimed at reducing fatal drug overdoses could serve as a model for similar prevention efforts here. The New York facility gives people a safe place to consume illicit drugs under medical supervision. It also connects them to voluntary treatment services. Dr. Maddie Castile is Worcester's public health commissioner. She visited the New York facility this week.
3: Besides preventing overdose mortality, Really, the piece is engaging with the
8: folks in the community who are using drugs to um, be able to help them, but it's also what the person is ready for, and ultimately is to be able to bring people into treatment.
0: Overdose prevention sites are still not legal in Massachusetts. There's new life for a billion-dollar power line designed to bring hydroelectricity from Canada to Massachusetts. Voters in Maine rejected the line in 2021, but then the companies behind the project sued the state. But as Murray Carpenter reports, a jury yesterday ruled in favor of
2: those companies. In a statement, Avon Grid's Scott Mahoney said, quote, Even after repeated delays and the costs caused by the change in law, The NECEC project remains the best way to bring low-cost renewable energy to Maine and New England while removing millions of metric tons of carbon from our atmosphere each year. Colin Durant of the Natural Resources Council of Maine, an intervener in the case, expressed disappointment.
9: We believe that voters should wield more power than corporations. Um, And we also think that Maine voters got it right when they overwhelmingly rejected the CMP corridor because it was a bad deal for Maine.
2: Opponents of the power line are considering
5: their next steps.
2: For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Murray Carpenter.
0: It's 706.
5: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Chapel Hill Chauncey Hall School in Waltham, Mass. For nearly 200 years, day and boarding students have achieved their best at CHCH. And next year, they will be opening doors and welcoming students to the new Chapel Hill Chauncey Hall Middle School. Learn more at their open house on April 23rd chch.org slash openhouse.
0: Tonight, the Bruins visit the Florida Panthers for Game 3 of their playoff series. It's also Game 3 tonight between the Celtics and Atlanta Hawks. Meantime, the Red Sox will be on the road to play the Milwaukee Brewers. Morning clouds will give way to sun today. 50s at the coast, but it could hit 70 in Worcester. Clouds return overnight with temperatures in the 40s. Cloudy tomorrow and in the mid-50s. Sunday, showers and a chance for a thunderstorm in the mid-50s. Right now, it's 46 degrees in Boston. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR.
10: WBUR supporters include CFP, Certified Financial Planner Professionals, committed to acting in their clients' best interests. Learn more at
11: letsmakeaplan.org. I'm A. Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Michelle Martin in Washington, D.C. Abortion is again on the docket at the Supreme Court, this time over the widely used abortion pill Mifepristone. The Biden administration is arguing to preserve access to the drug after a federal judge in Texas said it should be restricted. The Supreme Court is expected to weigh in today. Chelsea Yeoman is an attorney with Human Coalition. That's a group that hopes to end access to abortion throughout the United States and filed an amicus brief in the Texas case. Mrs. Yeoman, thanks so much for joining us. Happy to be here. How are you feeling about today? As I said, your organization's goal, you're very clear about that, is to end abortion throughout the United States. Do you think that goal is in sight?
12: You know, we, a human coalition, serve women every single day who are seeking abortion across the country. And we served about a quarter of a million women throughout COVID, really trying to help them get on their feet. And when we talk to them, 76% say they would prefer to parent if their circumstances were different. Hmm. And so I think seeing a a country where we as a society come alongside women instead of encouraging them to do the thing they don't want to do, which is actually have an abortion, um, is is our goal.
11: Okay. That was my question, but I'm going to move on. And let's just say for the sake of argument that the FDA was hasty 20 years ago when it approved mifepristone, that they, they say they weren't, but let's just say for the sake of argument that they were. We've had 20 years of independent data not pushed by advocacy groups on either side that says it is safe. What is your legal argument for seeking a ban on mifepristone now?
12: That is a great question. I'm so glad you asked it. Actually, in 20 years, the FDA did not require reporting adverse events besides death for the pill. So they actually have not proven up that it is safe and effective. Contrarily, there was a longitudinal study done that shows 35% of women who take the mifepristone end up in the ER within 30 days. It's dangerous. It, it causes hemorrhage. It's not as safe as a Tylenol. Tylenol doesn't cause rupture of, of membranes for ectopic pregnancies. We're serving these women sometimes in the middle of their abortions, calling us panicking about the what they're experiencing and what their bodies are experiencing. Well, I'm not
11: going to I'm not going to argue with what people are calling you about because I wouldn't have any access to that. But I have I will say I read the Amicus brief and it is is filled with statistics, which is, again, generated by an advocacy group like yours. And I would say, from a journalistic perspective, we would not find that more any more credible, more or less, than statistics generated by any advocacy group, including NARAL or Planned Parenthood. That being said, an independent researchers, the Kaiser Family Foundation says, medication abortion has a four-tenths of a percentage point risk of major complications and a mortality rate of less than one-thousandth of a percentage point. The FDA says the risk of death by penicillin is four times greater. And for a further point, tragically, childbirth in the U.S. is arguably far more dangerous for all women, especially for black women. The most recent numbers we could find from the CDC said that the mortality rate among non-Hispanic white women in childbirth was 27 deaths per 100,000 procedures. For black women, childbirth in the U.S. was 70 deaths per 100,000 procedures. That's worse than than Mexico. Given all of that, what is the argument that that banning mifepristone actually makes women safer?
12: Yes, the longitudinal study actually compared Medicaid data and ER visits and reporting from the doctors themselves across thousands and thousands of hospitals and women. And in that study, they found 35% of women end up in the ER with complications from the chemical abortion pill. That's astronomical when you think about it. And when you understand as well that that doesn't even include the FDA not requiring reporting of adverse events, it's not safe for women. You know, Tylenol doesn't cause hemorrhage. Tylenol doesn't cause sepsis. And Tylenol doesn't produce a dead body. And again, that longitudinal study comes from an
11: advocacy group like yours. And I think that's important to point that out. Not an independent research group yeah. like Kaiser you know, etc but before we let you is go is tell us two about two women
12: in Louisiana actually um, have died since December I spoke with the district attorneys and so that's from pills that are coming internationally it's a okay. in crisis out there for women I think it's important for them to know that
11: okay before we let you go what court cases or legislation on the state or national level is your organization looking to support next and we're particularly interested as briefly as you can if what if the Texas judges order banning Mifepristone is overturned what's the next move
12: well, I think the next move, of course, as we are committed to serving pregnant women, is to be there for them, to be there as a safety net, and to understand um, that children aren't disposable across the country. To be there to serve them and do that, and additionally, I think it's important to note that um, we want to be a voice for women whose voices aren't getting a platform. We're serving them. We know when they're traumatized, the, what they experience in their abortions, and we want to be there for them. Chelsea Yeoman is an attorney with Human Coalition. That's an
11: advocacy advocacy. A group that hopes to eliminate abortion in the United States. Chelsea Yeoman, thank you so much for joining
12: us. Thanks for having me.
13: U.S. officials say they've identified and quote infiltrated the Mexican cartel smuggling most of the deadly fentanyl now reaching American cities.
11: They say they've launched a new effort to arrest leaders and top operatives of the Sinaloa cartel.
13: NPR addiction correspondent Brian Mann is here. Brian, what role do officials say this cartel plays in the fentanyl crisis?
9: Well, Justice Department and Drug Enforcement Administration officials say they now believe this one faction of the Sinaloa cartel known as the Chapitos Network built and now operates the major pipeline of illegal fentanyl pumping the drug into the U.S. They say these are the guys responsible for a lot of the 80,000 Americans dying from opioid overdoses every year. And how do they know that? What they say is that over the last 18 months, they managed to infiltrate the Chapitos network and, quote, obtained unprecedented access to the organization's highest levels. They were able to map out its operations from China to Mexico to the U.S. And in these indictments made public last week, they described secret fentanyl deals they were able to observe in locations around the world. And And what they learned is pretty brutal. In addition to smuggling all that fentanyl that Chapitos allegedly waged a campaign of violence and terror here's attorney general merrick garland they
13: often torture and kill their victims they have fed some of their victims
9: dead and alive to tigers belonging to the chapitos it's a pretty horrible stuff and and now the u.s is offering tens of millions of dollars in rewards as they try to arrest the cartel's leaders tell us more about the chapitos this faction of Sinaloa is led by the sons of Joaquin Guzman, known as El Chapo, who's already serving a life sentence in federal prison in the U.S. These guys took over after their dad's arrest. Sam Quinonez is a veteran journalist who covers the Mexican cartels. He says capturing them would be a major victory.
1: These guys are absolute creeps, these Chapito dudes. I think bringing these previously untouchable princes of drugs to some kind of justice is a very good all the way around.
9: And these indictments go beyond the top leaders. They target about two dozen Sinaloa operatives around the world.
13: And meanwhile, the Mexican government has pulled back from cooperating with the U.S. in the drug war. What's
9: their response to these indictments? Well, this is interesting. They're angry. Everyone agrees that Chapito's network is a corrupting, violent influence inside Mexico. But President Lopez Obrador told reporters Monday. This DEA operation infiltrating the Sinaloa cartel happened without his government's authorization. He describes this as a threat to his country's sovereignty, says it's part of a wider campaign by the U.S. government spying inside Mexico.
14: Una abusiva,
9: what he says there is that uh, it's abusive, arrogant meddling that should not be accepted under any circumstance. So while the U.S. says it's making progress here, the diplomatic rift over how to tackle fentanyl it's clearly widening.
13: And at the end of things, uh, Brian, I mean, is there evidence that this pressure on this cartel will slow fentanyl smuggling and even maybe save lives?
9: Well, U.S. officials say they think this will help, but most experts I talk to are really skeptical. They just don't believe it. Fentanyl is really easy to make from industrial chemicals. The demand in the U.S., the level of opioid addiction is huge. So fentanyl trafficking is incredibly profitable. If the Chapitos are put in prison, there are other factions of the Sinaloa cartel and also other major cartels that are ready to take their place. John Colkin studies drug trafficking at Carnegie Mellon University.
2: I, though, am quite pessimistic. In the best of all possible worlds, we would literally shrink the supply. That's very difficult to do. That was very difficult to do, even with was cocaine and heroin. And for a bunch of reasons, it's much harder with a, a synthetic.
9: So Calkins supports this effort to take down the Chapitos He thinks they're brutal criminals and should be brought to justice. But he also thinks, you know, the cold hard reality is that fentanyl is here to stay.
13: NPR's Brian Mann covers addiction and drug policy for NPR. Brian, thanks.
9: Thank you.
11: Wildflowers are popping up across the western United States, blanketing the hills of Arizona and Southern California in brilliant colors. This year, the so called superbloom is so big it can be seen in satellite images from space. But what exactly defines a superbloom? Nick
13: Jensen, Conservation Program Director with the California Native Plant Society, has the answer.
7: It's a phenomenon in which there are large numbers of wildflowers, typically annuals that grace large swaths of the state in selected areas where those conditions are favorable in years with good rainfall.
11: But rain is not the only essential ingredient to a successful superbloom season. One of the things that has to be in
9: place is a seed
13: bank. And those seed banks might be lurking in places you would not expect. So picture this. You're taking a walk through Death Valley, one of the hottest places on Earth. But just below
7: your burning footsies? You're probably walking over thousands and thousands of wildflower seeds. And the seeds are essentially live plants in a state of dormancy, hanging out in the soil, waiting for the conditions to be right. Jensen says when the
11: temperature is right and there are not invasive plant species to compete with, the seeds have a better chance to sprout. Oh, and of course it takes a lot of water.
7: And voila, you have a wonderful display of
11: wildflowers. Now, if you're planning
13: to visit the blooms, Jensen asks that you educate yourself about the plants and watch
7: where you step. So they don't pop their picnic blanket out on a population of rare plants or beautiful wildflowers. You know, is this just a bunch of poppies or is this a
11: diversity of plants? Jensen believes that if visitors engage with the environment in a safe and thoughtful way, it will help protect these flowers for years to come. This is NPR News.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up in four minutes on Morning Edition, the International Criminal Court wants to investigate the war on drugs in the Philippines, but Filipino President Ferdinand Marcos Jr. says he won't cooperate. Then at 7.40, we hear from the only pharmacist in Vermont who provides what he calls medical aid in dying to terminally ill people. It's 7.19.
2: Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by
5: donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org cars. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by ThoughtForms Custom Builders, building healthy, high-performance homes for families and for the future, supporting Riverside Community Care, helping make a difference in the community by delivering innovative and compassionate behavioral health care and human services. More at riversidecc.org and thoughtforms-corp.com.
15: It's Coachella season, and of course, Bad Bunny is headlining. He just dropped a single with the band Grupo Frontera, who are known for Mexican regional music, a genre with roots that go back 150 years. And now, it's topping music charts. We're talking about
4: all of the world. This is really a watershed moment for the genre.
15: Hear that on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today, starting at 4 on 90.9
0: WBUR. A heads-up for T-Riders this weekend. Buses will replace red Line trains between Kendall and JFK UMass all day tomorrow and Sunday. Service should resume on Monday. Mostly cloudy today with skies that will gradually clear. The high will be near 58. Tonight, clouds move in and temperatures fall to a low around 45. Tomorrow, cloudy with a high back near 55. Showers likely on Sunday and maybe a thunderstorm with a high near 54. Right now, it's 46 degrees in Boston at 721
16: support for npr comes from this station and from britbox with the confessions of Frenny langton one woman's story of courage murder and forbidden love in this new original drama available to stream at britbox.com npr from progressive insurance with its name your price tool a way to see coverage options based on a driver's budget learn more at progressive.com or 1-800-progressive price and coverage match limited by state law. From Hint, maker of fruit-infused water with no sugar or diet sweeteners. Hint's 25 flavors include blackberry, coconut, and blueberry lemon in stores or at hintwater.com. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station.
13: This is Morning Edition from NPR
11: News, Amy Martinez. And I'm Michelle Martin. Good morning. The International Criminal Court has denied an appeal by the Philippine government to stop the court's investigation into the country's lethal years-long war against drugs. As Ashley Westerman reports from Manila, the Philippines is accused of committing crimes against humanity, and its current administration says it will not cooperate with the probe.
8: At a high school auditorium in Caliocan City in the northern part of Metro Manila, a special play is being put on about the Philippines.
12: Welcome to the Philippines.
17: The Philippines is called the Pearl
8: of the Orient Seas. But this performance is not about praising the Philippines. It's political performance art that aims to air out the country's dirty laundry.
7: The Philippines
18: is a nation of so many
7: political premises that failed. Well-
8: For several minutes, actors parade across the stage, holding signs that spell out things like corruption, inflation, illegal mining, bullying by China. Eventually, the performance turns its attention to the government's ongoing war on drugs, launched by former President Rodrigo Duterte in 2016. Amelia Santos, the 55-year-old widow of a man allegedly killed by police in an anti-drug operation, takes the mic. I didn't believe it at first, she says. Santos recalls coming home from work to be told her husband had been shot multiple times by police. (laughs) And to this day, justice eludes her family, she says. She's not alone. Nearly the entire cast is made up of people who have lost loved ones in the so-called war on drugs and have not received justice for the killings. Philippine officials say that only some 6,200 people have died in anti-drug operations since 2016. Most police claim self-defense in these incidents. But rights groups in the United Nations estimate it could be more, killed extrajudiciously by either police or vigilantes.
12: Human rights organizations have been saying that 27,000 to about 30,000 might have been killed.
8: Aurora Parong is with the Philippine Coalition for the International Criminal Court. It is these killings outside of the law that the ICC wants to investigate. It began in 2021 and has been met with various pushbacks over the years. But since the court denied an appeal by the Philippines last
12: month, the ICC Office of the Prosecutor can now continue what they started as an investigation into the possible crimes against humanity.
8: For human rights campaigners and legal experts, the person responsible is former President Duterte. But current President Ferdinand Marcos Jr. says the government will not cooperate because it has already concluded that the police are just doing their jobs. I
2: do not see what their jurisdiction is. I feel that we have in our uh, police and our judiciary a good system.
8: Indeed, the Philippines withdrew from the ICC in 2018. But since the killings began before that, the court can still investigate. This puts President Marcos in a difficult position politically, says Jean Encinas Franco, a political scientist at the University of the Philippines, Diliman. His recent pronouncements regarding the ICC probe brings back the violent
4: history of his father. So instead of making gains in terms
8: of reviving the Marcos name before the international community, I see it as a setback. But Marcos also owes his presidential victory to his alliance with the Dutertes, Franco says, particularly Sarah Duterte, the current vice president and the daughter of the former president. I think Marcos Jr. would not want to antagonize Sarah Duterte supporters. And polls show that Duterte, as well as the war against drugs as a policy, remain incredibly popular among Filipino voters today. Back at the auditorium, the play has wrapped up. Backstage Emilia Santos says this is her first time to perform. After my husband died, I wasn't able to say anything I felt, she says. Now I'm relieved. Like other victims' families, Santos will have to wait and see what comes of the International Criminal Court investigation. But in the meantime, she says she will continue to fight for justice herself. For NPR News, I'm Ashley Westerman in Manila.
13: More than 50,000 migrants have arrived in New York since last spring. Mayor Eric Adams says the city needs more support helping them. So he's asking the Biden administration to step up. Today, Adams is meeting with federal officials in D.C. to push for assistance. Here's NPR's Jasmine Garst.
17: Mayor Eric Adams has some harsh words for the Biden administration.
19: The national government has turned its back on New York City.
17: This was at a press conference this week before heading to Washington, D.C.,
19: This is one of the largest humanitarian crises that this city has ever experienced.
17: Adams is asking that the federal government provide New York with more aid. So far, New York officials say they've gotten around $8 million from state and federal sources, but project the city will spend $1.4 billion on migrant aid just this fiscal year. At the press conference, a group of protesters demanded New York do better by asylum seekers. Adams said those demands should be directed at Washington. He says one thing that would help is if asylum seekers could more easily get work permits as they wait for their cases to be resolved. At a shelter in Brooklyn, Rodrigo Granda says he came from Ecuador five months ago, escaping violence. He says a work permit would allow him to get a stable, regular job.
20: Eh, una Si se queda un día, pues...
17: it's an expensive city he says if you live day to day it gets pretty hard currently it can take up to two years for some asylum seekers to even be able to apply for a work authorization new york officials say if people could at least work the city wouldn't have to take on so many costs jasmine garst and PR news new york
13: This is NPR News.
0: Thanks for listening to WBWAR. Coming up in five minutes on Morning Edition, one of the two generals vying for control of Sudan has committed to a transition to civilian rule. It's 729. Join us tomorrow afternoon at WBWAR City Space for an Earth Day concert featuring a multimedia celebration of the planet. Get tickets at WBWAR.org slash events.
10: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Celebrity Series, presenting the Jazz at Lincoln Center Orchestra with Wynton Marsalis, a big band experience at Symphony Hall tonight, CelebritySeries.org. And Vertex, working for people with sickle cell and genetic kidney diseases, cystic fibrosis, and more, careers in research and cell and genetic therapies at VRTX.com.
18: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin is in Germany today where he addressed the recent leak of dozens of classified Pentagon documents online.
9: I
21: take this issue very seriously and we will continue to work closely and respectfully with our deeply valued allies and
18: partners. A 21-year-old IT specialist with the Massachusetts Air National Guard has been charged with leaking the documents, many of which involve the war in Ukraine. That war is a main focus of Austin's trip to Germany. Before the end of the day, the U.S. Supreme Court is expected to weigh in on whether access to a widely used abortion medication will remain unchanged pending the outcome of a legal battle. The High Court has delayed a decision until late tonight. Groups opposed to abortion rights are challenging the Food and Drug Administration's approval of mifepristone more than 20 years ago. Kate Wells with Michigan Radio has more.
20: Doctors here have not experienced this much confusion or uncertainty really since last summer, since Roe was overturned, especially since, you know, residents here in Michigan in November voted to put abortion rights in the state constitution, and yet even here this method is still under threat.
18: Mifepristone is used in about half of all abortions in the U.S. This is NPR News from Washington.
20: From
0: WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shinoi. Governor Healy is shaking up the MBTA Board of Directors. She replaced the current chair this morning with Thomas Glynn. He served as GM of the T in the early 1990s and more recently led the agency which oversees Logan Airport. The governor also appointed former Lynn Mayor Thomas McGee and former banking executive Eric Goodwine to the board. The T has been dealing with improving its service as well as dealing with a number of safety problems. Organizers say a convention in Boston next weekend will be the largest ever gathering of Satanists. It's called SatanCon. Wars Lainey Ruxtell reports the event is also expected to draw large protests.
22: Conservative and Christian groups from across the country will come to Copley Square to protest the sold-out event at the Marriott Copley Place. Dex DeHardin is a spokesman for the Satanic Temple and an ordained minister of Satan. He says he has no problem with the protests.
7: But we're not doing it for the shock value. We're just saying we're here, we're Satanists, and we're going to live publicly and unashamedly. And, and that very fact alone is enough to shock some people into thinking that we have some nefarious ends.
22: DeHardin says the temple hired private security and is working with Boston police to ensure safety. For 90.9 WBUR... I'm Lainey Roxtell.
0: The city of Gloucester will celebrate 400 new trees in honor of Earth Day. It also plans to preserve another 400 of the city's oldest trees. Mayor Greg Verga says the initiative is part of the city's larger climate action plan.
23: The job that trees do to sequester the uh, carbon can't be overlooked. And the city is just forward thinking. And uh, we're so vulnerable here at the coast to climate change and any efforts that we can do to uh, try to slow that down. Mother Nature eventually is going to win, but if we can slow it down, you know, that is a victory in its, uh, its own way.
0: The initiative also coincides with the city's 400th anniversary. It's 733.
24: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Music Emporium, purveyors of vintage and new acoustic and electric guitars for over 50 years. Every instrument has a story. You can discover yours at themusicemporium.com. Tonight
0: it's Game 3 in the playoff series between the Celtics and Hawks. Boston leads that series two games to none. It's also Game 3 tonight for the Bruins and Florida Panthers. That series is tied at one game each. And tonight the Red Sox visit the Milwaukee Brewers. Skies gradually clear today for a sunny day with highs in the upper 50s. Tonight, the clouds return and temperatures fall as low as the mid-40s. Tomorrow, overcast with a high in the mid-50s. Rain with a thunderstorm possible on Sunday will have high temperatures in the mid-50s. It's 46 degrees in Boston at 734.
16: You're- Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Peacock, with the new original series, Mrs. Davis, about the world's most powerful artificial intelligence and the nun devoted to destroying her. From Tara Hernandez and Damon Lindelof, streaming now on Peacock. And from Cunard, sailing to over 250 destinations with Queen Mary II, Queen Victoria, Queen Elizabeth, and Queen Anne. Each voyage is dedicated to a world of fine dining and entertainment. Cunard.com
11: it's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin in Washington, D.C.
13: Hannah Mae Martinez in Culver City, California. The leader of the Sudanese military today claimed he is committed to transition
11: to civilian rule. But in his first speech since fighting began, General Abdul-Fattah Burhan made no mention of accepting a three-day-long ceasefire offered by the paramilitary forces. Gunfire was heard on the streets of Khartoum and other cities on Friday morning, and the U.S. is moving a large number of additional troops to its base in nearby Djibouti to prepare for a possible evacuation of U.S. citizens in Sudan.
13: NPR's Emmanuel Akinwoto who has been monitoring the situation. He joins us now from Lagos. Um, Emmanuel, before we hear more detail about the humanitarian situation, what more do we know about the US's plans to
25: evacuate citizens? Um, Not very much. You know, the airspace is closed. The airport in Khartoum has been actually at the center of the fighting. If there was a ceasefire, it would offer a window, but there isn't one. The fighting hasn't stopped, even this morning. There's an estimated 16,000 Americans registered in Sudan. It would be a major operation to evacuate them at any time, especially now. And the State Department spokesperson said yesterday that due to the fluid situation, it's not safe to undertake an evacuation. So essentially, these are preparations, um, but the conditions for an evacuation just isn't there. Egypt managed to evacuate about 177 troops from northern Sudan uh, this week, but 27 remain in Khartoum. And, and obviously now the situation is, is very precarious.
13: And yeah, I know that thousands of Sudanese have become displaced by the fighting. How bad is the humanitarian situation there?
25: The speed of the collapse in Khartoum and, and other areas surrounding it has been tragic and surreal. Uh, in places, there are dead bodies on the streets, We're we're, we're hearing at least 33 330 people have died thousands of people injured the majority of hospitals have shut down and the few that are open are absolutely overwhelmed and people are sheltering at home but people are also dying at home i spoke to someone yesterday whose mother died in her living room in khartoum killed by shrapnel and we've been hearing stories like this all week the fighting has been most intense in the center of the city and areas around it so so many people in their homes are exposed to this and then tragically we've also seen reports of rsf fighters rapid support force fighters the paramilitary group taking over hospitals embedding in people's homes kicking residents out and committing abuses and sexual abuses everyone who can are trying to flee cartoon right now
13: meanwhile this instability and all this fighting is making Neighbors uh, of Sudan very, very nervous. Remind us what's at stake for those countries that are right nearby.
25: Uh, You know, Sudan borders seven countries, uh, many of them with ethnic groups that cross these borders. Uh, And the borders are porous, some of them. And, you know, countries like Chad, the Central African Republic, South Sudan, And there's a potential that this conflict brings in other militia and ethnic militia. For now, that hasn't been the case. And the other militia groups in Sudan and international actors with a stake in Sudan have largely advocated peace talks. But as we can see, those calls have completely been unheard. That's NPR's Emmanuel Akinwotu in Lagos. Thank you very much. Thank you.
11: In Vermont, there is a pharmacist who drives for hours all across the state to deliver a specific type of medication. It's for terminally ill patients who ask him to bring it to hasten their death. Michaela Lafrac from Member Station Vermont Public accompanied him during one of his deliveries. Steve
4: Hawkberg stands outside an apartment building in Williston, Vermont. He's waiting for his patient, Edie Novicki, to let him in.
14: Hello. Hi there. Come on in.
4: They settle in at her table, and Hochberg opens up a brown paper bag. Inside is a prescription, strong enough to lead to death. He starts with a disclaimer.
14: To begin with, lots of reasons why it doesn't get used, and you know you are not under any pressure or any rule that says you have to use it. Okay. It's totally up to you, okay?
4: Novicki nods. This is what she wants. She has stage 4 stomach cancer and just a few weeks left to live. After getting two doctors to confirm her terminal diagnosis and making a written request, Novicki got this prescription. Vermont is one of just 10 states and Washington, D.C. where medical aid in dying is legal.
23: My
14: doctors are supporting me. My family supporting me. That's great. Yeah. That's great. They're still in denial
18: thinking thinking I'm not going to be using it for a long time. Right. But they're not here with me.
4: Hochberg's family business, Smile and Steve Pharmacies, is the only pharmacy in Vermont that fills prescriptions for medical aid in dying. He hand delivers almost every one, no matter where in the state the person lives.
14: I don't mind the driving, and, and I think this is way too personal of a medication yeah. to just drop it in the mail to you.
4: Hochberg yeah. starts I'm... methodically explaining the process to Novicki. He's patient, but frank.
14: You're going to start with these pills. Okay. There's two of one and one of another. And the purpose of these two? Those two are going to help for nausea, vomiting, and okay. swallowing. We obviously don't want this coming back. All right.
4: Whenever she takes the pills, Novicki will then ingest a lethal dose of a couple different drugs mixed into a powder. The medications have to be mixed at a compounding pharmacy. There's only one other one in Vermont besides Hochberg's. He recommends that Novicki mix the powder with apple juice to help her swallow. And he reminds her of an important rule.
14: You have to be the one to hold that vessel.
4: That's part of Vermont's medical aid and dying law. Vermont's a small state, just 650,000 people. Demand for these prescriptions isn't very high. Since it became legal in Vermont in 2013, fewer than 200 people have used medical aid and dying. And Hawkberg filled most of those prescriptions. At Edie Novicki's apartment, he finishes explaining the medication.
14: Once you finish this, within a couple of minutes, you will be unconscious. You will not wake up. That's, you'll be at peace at that point. Okay.
4: Okay. Novicki sits quietly with this for a moment. Let me know if this is too personal, but, but when you think about taking the medication, um, how does that make you feel?
14: Sad. I'm too young. <sighs> it's a it's a very difficult choice to make. Well, the choice is always difficult to choose.
4: Yeah. Conversations like this one are exactly why Hockberg drives for hours across the state to deliver these medications.
14: And you know, we go to school to learn how to help people. It's yeah. no other. That that was always my my view of what pharmacy is. This is the ultimate of help.
4: Yeah. Once Novicki assures him she has no more questions, Hawkberg hugs her goodbye. Then he heads outside to his red pickup truck to make the hour-and-a-half drive back home. He has another delivery tomorrow. For NPR News, I'm Michaela LaFrac in Burlington.
11: Now, if you or someone you know is in crisis, if you may be considering suicide or otherwise hurting yourself, please call or text 988 to reach the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. This is NPR News.
0: I'm Rupa Chenoy in Boston. In just a few minutes at 745, a number of New England farmers are responding to climate change with something called silvo pastures. It integrates trees, pasture, and livestock on one plot of land— in an attempt to help climate change. In your forecast, skies clear for a sunny day today in the upper 50s. It may reach 70 around Worcester. Some clouds return tonight. It'll be in the mid-40s. Cloudy tomorrow in the mid-50s. Sunday, rain with a thunderstorm possible in the mid-50s. It's 46 degrees in Boston at 743.
5: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by summer term at Boston University, offering convenient day, evening, and online scheduling with courses open to working professionals and lifelong learners. Study education, communication, business, project management, computer science, the arts, film and TV, languages, literature, and more visit bu.edu slash summer.
0: Shares in Boston-based General Electric are at a five-year high. The company's stock prices briefly rose to more than $100 yesterday. It's the first time that's happened since early 2018. However, Bro- Bloomberg reports GE's shares are still down 50 percent from its record high in 2016. A construction company in East Boston wants to turn its headquarters into apartments. GVW is asking Boston planners to let it build 40 units along Bennington Street near the Orient Heights Tea Station. The project would include retail space. It's 744.
5: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Uncommon Feasts Catering. Full-service culinary events for your social or corporate gatherings. Boston, the North Shore, and Midcoast Maine. Gather around. Let's feast. This
0: is WBWAR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. One of the top climate change solutions in agriculture is not a new idea, but it's just starting to gain momentum in New England. It's called silvopasture. It integrates trees and pasture into one system. And as Patrick Scahill reports, farmers say the system is better for them and their animals.
26: To really understand silvopasture, imagine you're a cow grazing under full sun on a hot August day. It's 95 degrees and humid. Do you want to be out there eating a full buffet? You know, you don't
2: want to do that. You, as a human, you're gonna be like, this is miserable.
26: Joe Oréfiche is a lecturer at the Yale School of the Environment and the owner of Hidden Blossom Farm in Connecticut.
2: And so with, with livestock too,
26: they don't want to be just in the sun hot. They're not gonna eat as much, they're not gonna produce as much. But Oréfiche's cows aren't actually eating in an open field. They're in the comfortable shade of carefully spaced trees. Healthy trees get bigger, soil conditions are better, and more sunlight hits the forest floor, allowing grass to grow lush and green. That's silvopasture.
2: Silvopasture is the intentional integration of livestock, trees, and forage on the same unit of land. The trees are producing a crop, the grass is producing a crop, which is feeding the livestock.
26: And all of those are managed. That management is key. In 2021, Orefiche cut some trees here, but he left some species for diversity or crops like maple syrup. The result, he says, is a system that keeps cows happier, gives him extra crops, and makes the farm more resilient to climate change.
2: When you have a drought, the grass in a treeless pasture just stops. Like last summer, 2022, it was dry. I was still grazing. Well, my cows were still grazing. I don't eat grass. But the cows were grazing, and that was because I had silvopasture.
26: As record drought gripped much of the U.S. last year, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration says five of the six New England states saw record warm temperatures. Megan Giroux has a farm in New York and works with an organization that helps farmers there and in New England start silvopastures.
22: There are times when I go to a farm site visit where I feel scared on behalf of those farmers because... Most farms are not well prepared for what's coming.
26: She says more farmers want to do silvopasture as they face the reality of climate change. Intense precipitation can erode soil and drought can shorten grazing, meaning farmers pay more for animal feed. The latest report from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change says rising carbon emissions will only make things worse. If there is
27: one or two or three dr- drought years simultaneously, you know, farmers are the biggest one to lose.
26: Youssef Jamil is an associate scientist with Project Drawdown. It lists silvopasture as a top global solution for climate change because there are pasture fields everywhere.
27: You know, in our solutions uh, set, it says that silvopasture can be implemented in a total land for about 823 million hectares. So, That's a huge amount of land. When you can implement a solution globally, it makes it super powerful.
26: He says carbon in trees and soil is much better than in the atmosphere, and that harvesting crops like apples or nuts from trees in silvopastures means farmers can sell more.
1: We call it our our drought insurance policy.
26: Ben Kerper, who farms in Rhode Island, says silvopasture is all about balancing concerns for the climate against the economic uncertainty of being a farmer. Today, he pastures beef cattle on about 60 acres of land, and he's converted about half to silvopasture. He rents the farmland and says silvopasture has another benefit. It can make land more affordable.
1: If you look at the cost of land rent, as a farmer, if you're just trying to rent land, you might pay 300 bucks an acre for an open field. You might only have to pay 20 bucks an acre for forest.
26: And while silvopasture won't solve climate change on its own, Kerper and other farmers say it's a key adaptation.
1: Silvopasture is the answer that, that I've seen, like a very clear answer where we can keep the carbon sequestering trees out there and then also be producing food underneath it.
26: Keeping food systems local and protecting farms as they face climate change. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Patrick Scahill. Funding for WBUR's environmental coverage comes from An Unlikely Story
5: Bookstore and Café in Plainville, believing that where you shop shapes where you live. With books, games, cards, decor, and more for specific interests, such as the environment and climate change. In-person and live virtual events. More at anunlikelystory.com.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in just a couple minutes, diehard fans of Netflix's DVD-by-mail service are mourning the company's decision to cancel the service. It's 7.50.
24: We are funded by you, our listeners, and by MIT Museum, with captivating exhibitions and dynamic programming that turn MIT inside out. Curious what the buzz is about? Plan your visit today.
15: It's Coachella season, and of course, Bad Bunny is headlining. He just dropped a single with the band Grupo Frontera, who are known for Mexican regional music, a genre with roots that go back 150 years. And now it's topping music charts. We're
4: talking about all of the world. This is really a watershed moment for the genre.
15: Hear that on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today starting at 4 on 90.9
0: WBUR. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Friday morning. In Washington, a decision is expected today from the U.S. Supreme Court on nationwide access to the abortion pill mifepristone. Britain's deputy prime minister resigned today after an investigation revealed a history of bullying. And here in Massachusetts, the T says it needs to tap into budget reserves because ridership has not returned to pre-pandemic levels. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR on the WBUR mobile app and at
24: WBUR.org. WBUR supporters include AAFCPAs, accounting, audit, tax, advisory, and wealth management for nonprofits, commercial companies, and individuals. AAFCPA.com. It'll eventually
0: be sunny today in the upper 50s by this afternoon. Tonight, mid-40s, and a few clouds move back in. Tomorrow, overcast and mid-50s. Right now, it's 46 degrees in Boston at
11: 751.
13: This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez.
11: And I'm Michelle Martin. After 25 years, Netflix is winding down its business of mailing DVDs to subscribers. Now, maybe that's a no-brainer in this digital age, but not to everybody. Here's NPR's Mendeley Del Barco.
21: Before it was a $150 billion streaming service... Netflix was strictly a DVD by mail operation, created by two Silicon Valley entrepreneurs, Mark Randolph and Reed Hastings. The idea was to use the internet, the net, to rent out movies, flicks, to subscribers.
9: Neither of us had ever actually seen a DVD.
21: In the audiobook of his memoir, That Will Never Work, Randolph says before 1997, no one outside of Japan owned a DVD player. There were Laserdiscs, VHS tapes, and Betamax. Randolph and Hastings had a hunch DVDs could be the next big thing, and they could ship them to customers by snail mail.
27: Let's just try it. Mail a CD to your place. If it breaks, it breaks.
21: Crazy. So Randolph went out and bought a CD of Patsy Cline's Greatest Hits and a pink greeting card envelope. He mailed it with a 32-cent stamp to Hastings' house and it arrived the next morning undamaged. Fast forward to April 14, 1998. <laughs> Netflix shipped its first DVD movie, Beetlejuice.
28: It's showtime.
21: Since then, the company has shipped 5.2 billion discs by mail and now iconic red envelopes, not pink, to 40 million subscribers. But now, as the DVD and Blu-ray disc business wanes, CEO Ted Sarandis announced the service will end on September 29th. A real bummer for holdouts like 71-year-old Claire Ryan in Memphis.
10: Wow, that's the end of an era. You know, how space age we thought that was when we had our subscription
21: initially. Ryan says since 2006, she and her wife have rented 418 films from Netflix. There are hundreds more on their queue. Old black-and-white movies, documentaries, foreign films, and especially classic Christmas pictures. There are many movies that you can't stream on Netflix. You can only see them on DVD. Some loyal subscribers say they can't afford streaming services or they live in rural areas without broadband. Ryan says she and her wife still have a VCR, a Blu-ray and a DVD player, and they plan to order Netflix DVDs to the end. DVDs are really
29: dinosaurs. It's like never seeing one of those in my mailbox again is going to be really weird.
21: There's a petition to keep the service going, and kiosk business Redbox reportedly even offered to take it over. But it seems that soon the last of those DVDs in red envelopes will be extinct. Mandalit del Barco, NPR News.
13: Cheetah Rivera had, in the words of one admirer, the fastest feat on Broadway. A legendary dancer, she delighted audiences in the big musicals of the day, Bye Bye Birdie, Can Can, Chicago, and of course, I'm not forgetting West Side Story. Rivera has a memoir coming out next week. NPR special correspondent Susan Stamberg stepped up to the book and the dancer.
19: Could you say your full name for us? Yes. Dolores Conchita Figueroa. Del Rivero. Now, the rest of it is Montestruco Florentino Canimacro
28: del Fluente. Or you could just call her Legend, a title she has earned for her wow making work in some of Broadway's greatest musicals. Rivera was in her mid-20s when she got her first big break, creating the role of Anita in the original nineteen fifty-seven Broadway version of West Side Story. Oh. Many have played Anita in many productions of West Side Story. Cheetah Rivera got there first. I am the original.
19: I was there with the first flicker of the skirt.
28: Other West Side Story originals are also legends today. Conductor and composer Leonard Bernstein wrote the music. He asked her to come to his apartment. A doorman escorted her there. I nervously go into his music
19: room. It was very bright, lots of windows overlooking
28: Carnegie Hall. She had prepared, learned every note of Anita's music.
19: A boy like that would kill your brother. Forget that boy and find another. He was so natural. He was so normal
28: that I forgot who he was this young, unwealthy, unflappable Puerto Rican girl who grew up in Washington, D.C., showing the great maestro what she could do. She did good. And to hear him
19: say, that was good, oh, I mean, it was it was like saying
28: it was great.
17: And he's the boy who gets your love and gets your heart.
28: Another legend, dancer and choreographer, Jerome Robbins, directed and choreographed West Side Story, Rivera came to him from ballet. Robbins added angles and, yes, flirtatious, flicking skirts to the
19: show. He mixed a little bit of jazz in there, a twist of the hip, a twist of the leg. He was a demanding perfectionist. Rivera worked her hips off. To work with Jerome Robbins was to have a father, You wanted to please your father. You wanted to do exactly as he described it. It was all
28: about pleasing your teacher. When the time came to make the first movie of West Side Story, Rita Moreno played Anita. Rivera was disappointed. But looking back, that 1961 closed door opened many new doors for her during Broadway's golden age. Bye Bye Birdie, Chicago. She got to sing this one and that one. Come
19: on, baby, why don't we paint the town? And all that jazz, I'm going Wait,
28: there's me more. Me Kiss of me the me Spider Woman, again. Tony and Drama Desk Awards, the Presidential Medal of Freedom, a Kennedy Center honor. Tell me, do you think you're a great singer? Oh, no. and all that
19: jazz.
28: <laughs> Start
19: the car, I know a whoopee spot where the gin is cold but the piano's hot. It's just
28: well, on a stage hot. once, or YouTube now, with her flashing eyes and bright red lips and sexy shoulders, 90-year-old... Dolores Conchita
19: Figueroa del Rivero
28: sounds, sounds as great as she looks. In her hometown of Washington, D.C., I'm Susan Stamberg, NPR News. And
19: all that jazz, I hear that Father Dip is gonna blow the blues. <laughs>
28: and all that jazz,
19: hold
13: on, we we're gonna bunny hug. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. Our theme music was inspired by B.J. Liederman. I'm Amy Martinez.
11: And I'm Michelle Martin.
16: Support for NPR comes from this station and from Easy Cater committed to helping companies find food for meetings and team lunches, with catering menus from restaurants nationwide, online ordering, and 24-7 live support. EasyCater.com. From CFP, Certified Financial Planner Professionals, committed to acting in their clients' best interests. Learn more at letsmakeaplan.org. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station. I'm
24: WBUR Arts and Culture reporter Cristela Guerra, and this is 90.9 WBUR FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.
0: Under pressure from international leaders, Sudan's top general declares its military is committed to a civilian-led government. It's Friday, April 21st. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shenoy. Coming up, doctors in Michigan say the pending Supreme Court ruling on the abortion medication Mifepristone is causing confusion and uncertainty
12: it's hard you know when I know that I'm gonna walk into work to provide care to patients with these medications after tomorrow am I allowed to do that I don't know yet
0: also BuzzFeed is shutting down its Pulitzer Prize winning news division as the company lays off staff plus we preview a major conference in downtown Boston next week called SatanCon it's supposed to be the largest gathering of Satanists ever
7: we're just saying we're here we're Satanists and we're going to live publicly and unashamedly
0: skies gradually clear for a sunny day in the Upper 50s today.
3: It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. There's discussion of a cessation of hostilities in Sudan between two warring factions. Nothing's been agreed to. Warfare over the past week has killed more than 400 people. NPR's Tamara Keith reports the Pentagon is staging military personnel to be ready if U.S. personnel need to be evacuated from Sudan's capital Khartoum.
8: U.S. government personnel in Khartoum are sheltering in place as violence between rival military factions rages in the Sudanese capital. National Security Council spokesman John Kirby says no decision to evacuate U.S.
30: personnel has been made. It's just really about prepositioning military forces. Um, if and when there's a decision uh, to move towards some sort of uh, military evacuation, then we'll have more to say about that at the time in terms of size, scale, scope, and and what we're doing. Kirby
8: said the main focus now is still on urging peace in Sudan, but the situation in Khartoum is dire, with food shortages and civilians caught in the crossfire.
3: Tamara Keith, NPR News. The U.S. Supreme Court has a deadline of midnight tonight to decide whether to uphold restrictions or a ban on a common abortion medication. Meanwhile, Dan Karpinchuk reports Canada is prepared to offer Americans access to the medication Mifepristone.
14: In Ottawa, Families Minister Karina Gould says the Canadian government would work to provide the drug to Americans seeking medication abortions. She says she's especially concerned that laws in some states criminalize those who cross state borders to access reproductive health care. She says care is needed to not further endanger those who are seeking access to reproductive health care and services. Dan Carpencheck reporting. Five Oklahoma counties
3: are under states of emergency. This follows deadly tornadoes and violent thunderstorms this week that killed three people. There's been substantial damage reported. Funeral services will be held today for a 20-year-old upstate New York woman. She was shot to death last weekend after her vehicle accidentally pulled into the wrong driveway. From member station WAMC, Jesse King reports.
20: Kaylin Gillis and her friends were searching for a party in the rural Washington County town of Hebron when they mistakenly turned into the driveway of 65-year-old Kevin Monahan. Police say Monahan fired twice at the group, killing Gillis. Monahan is charged with second-degree murder. Friends and family will host a community gathering before Gillis' funeral in Schuylerville, New York. Her father, Andrew Gillis, spoke with reporters Wednesday.
25: If anything... I'm thankful for is that I got to tell her that I love her before she walked out
1: the door.
20: Monahan's lawyer says three vehicles pulled into his client's driveway, and Monahan was frightened when he pulled the trigger. For NPR News, I'm Jesse King in Albany, New York.
3: Authorities in Alabama have now arrested a sixth person in connection with last weekend's deadly shooting at a teenager's birthday party. Four people were killed and 32 others were injured. Alabama officials say investigators believe gunmen fired into the crowd during the celebration. This is NPR. From
0: WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Chenoy. Allegations of abuse against award-winning Boston chef Barbara Lynch are spurring a broader conversation on restaurant industry culture. Lynch is accused of physically and verbally harassing workers. More now from WBOR's Zininger and Wameka.
8: Many in the restaurant sector say mistreatment is common. Attorney Lou Sabin represents an employee he says was fired by Lynch.
3: There's a dirty secret that there are so many different violations
2: going on in the restaurant industry. Honestly, it's not really that hard to find them
8: sometimes. In recent months, the owner of Stash's Pizza in Roslindale was arrested for the alleged abuse of immigrant workers. And celebrity chef Mario Batali settled two Massachusetts lawsuits alleging sexual assault. Sabin says he hopes these stories coming to light force employers to knock off bad behaviour in the industry for 90.9 WBUR I'm Seninjor and Womeka
0: The MBTA plans to dip into its savings to fund its upcoming budget. The agency will use over $260 million in its reserves for the next fiscal year. The T says it needs to use the money because ridership is not back to pre-pandemic levels. Agency officials warn they may not be able to fund future budgets if they have to keep using money from the reserve. Dozens of black student groups at Harvard say the university failed to protect black students during a swatting incident. Earlier this month, campus police held several students in an all-black dorm at gunpoint while responding to a fake emergency call. More than 45 Harvard organizations signed a letter demanding action from the university. That includes increased transparency in campus policing. Harvard officials say they were following protocol during the response. Loggers in Massachusetts say they're growing frustrated with the Healy administration. As Nancy Cohn reports, the Massachusetts Forest Alliance says it's waiting for information from the state on any new plans to preserve forests to address climate change. When state agencies decide that some trees need to be cut on public land, they ask loggers from the private
30: sector to bid on the jobs. Since Maura Healy became governor, Chris Egan of the Forest Alliance says the state hasn't asked for bids. So in effect, for now, there's an unofficial moratorium on tree cutting on state land. He says
28: he's been asking the state for a meeting.
1: We're just operating in an information vacuum and that uncertainty is weighing on our members, their livelihoods, the success of their businesses. The longer this proceeds, the more those things will be threatened.
0: The governor's office says the administration is continuing to do outreach with the public to determine next steps. For the New England News Collaborative... I'm Nancy Cohen. The Bruins look to retake their lead in the playoff series against the Florida Panthers tonight as they play Game 3. It's also Game 3 tonight in the series between the Celtics and the Atlanta Hawks. As for the Red Sox, they'll visit the Milwaukee Brewers tonight.
5: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Worcester Art Museum with Frontiers of Impressionism, featuring works by over 30 artists, including Monet, Renoir, Cassatt, and more. Now open WorcesterArt.org.
0: Morning clouds will give way to sun today. 50s at the coast, but it could hit 70 in Worcester. Clouds return overnight with temperatures in the 40s. Cloudy tomorrow and in the mid-50s. Sunday, showers and a chance for a thunderstorm in the mid-50s. Right now, it's 46 degrees in Boston at 8.07. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR.
10: WBUR supporters include LifeLock by Norton, working to help consumers protect themselves against tax identity theft. Learn more at LifeLock.com NPR.
13: This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e Martinez in Culver City, California.
11: And I'm Michelle Martin in Washington, D.C. The website BuzzFeed is shutting down its Pulitzer Prize-winning newsroom. The company says 15% of BuzzFeed's workforce, or about 180 employees, will be laid off. We called Ben Smith to hear more about this. He's the former editor-in-chief at BuzzFeed News. Good morning, Ben. Hi, Michelle. So you were the founding editor of BuzzFeed News. You worked there for almost 10 years. How are you receiving this? Sad?
31: Mad? Surprised? Surprised? You know I mean I think it's really sad I'm really sad about it I know a lot of my a lot of my colleagues are I think you know and and, and I wouldn't say totally surprised it's been um, you know Buzz, BuzzFeed and BuzzFeed news we you know we came up as as Facebook and Twitter and social media rose and became this exciting new thing where you could uh you could distri- you know where you could distribute stories to millions of people and you know I think as consumers as everybody got a little sick of consuming news through Facebook, um, BuzzFeed in particular, which had probably been we'd probably been better than anybody else at getting you those links on Facebook, you know, really struggled to to, to continue to hold on to this huge audience.
11: So, so what do you think led to this? Could you be more specific about the specific yeah. factors?
31: Yeah, I I I, I think you know you'll people fewer people are on Facebook and Twitter than used to be, and really particularly around the 2016 election, I think. You know, when, when, when we started out, there was this sense of, wow, isn't it neat to get, you know, hard news stories mixed up with funny quizzes, mixed up with baby Twitter pictures on Facebook. What kind of like a novel, interesting way to get your media. And I think come the 2016 election, that started to feel actually incredibly toxic. And a lot of people hated it. And the social media companies, Facebook in particular, reacted to that by trying to get away from news. And if you look at your Facebook feed today, if you're still on Facebook, which a lot of people are not, you'll see a lot less news. And yeah, and and so for for BuzzFeed and for other companies that, that rose with those social platforms, it's been a pretty tough, pretty tough few years.
11: So we are in a moment where both traditional and digital news outlets are laying off employees because of financial issues and including this one, including NPR, at Vox Insider, The Washington Post. Just to get your take here, what, what do you think this says?
31: You know, I think we're we're at a moment of a, a big change in the news business. I think there was a kind of internet news that rose, you know, really in the early 2000s. I just sort of spent a couple years writing a book about this and you can really feel that there was this era that began with websites like Gawker and Huffington Post and BuzzFeed in the early 2000s and, you know, and shaped a lot of what, what we all sort of think of as news and media now. I think, you know, from the New York Times to NPR, people took a lot of those lessons about how to use the internet. And now the Internet is changing a lot. People are watching short videos instead of going on social networks. They're, um, in the, they're consuming a lot in email, and uh, they're going to events. I mean, it's a, it's sort of a different news world, and so I think a lot of companies are having to adjust.
21: And what
11: do you think that means? I mean, and I guess how does that land with you? I mean, you are still with a media company. You're with a group called Semaphore. Does this, do you think that this equally well serves the public? And if you know, not, what 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 might?
31: You know, I don't think a lot of people think that the social media era did serve the public mm-hmm. very well. I mean, I think we all wound up feeling overwhelmed, feeling that news was being fed to us through algorithms and, you know, and sort of pandered to in certain ways. And so, I mean, I you know, I can't predict if the next thing will be better. But I do think what a lot of us in media are thinking about is how do we reach, you know, how do we sort of have... A, a, what feels like a more human, more direct conversation—something that is less mediated, less less piped through these big digital pipes—and
11: perhaps less susceptible to uh, manipulation. So, okay, well, let's talk more. You got a book coming out. Ben Smith is a former editor in chief for BuzzFeed News. He's got a forthcoming book, *Traffic*. It's about the history of digital media. Ben Smith, thanks so much for talking to us. Thank you, Michelle.
13: NASA wants to return people to the moon by as early as 2025. Now, in order to make that happen, SpaceX's Starship rocket is needed because it's the biggest and most powerful rocket ever built. Yesterday, the rocket successfully launched into the sky on its first test flight. I mean, it did get off the ground, technically, only to explode into a large fireball minutes later. Still, SpaceX employees erupted in cheers.
16: And there, as you saw, as we promised, an exciting end to the Starship inaugural integrated test flight and
13: cheering and explosion space industry analyst Carissa Christensen is here to explain so Carissa fire flame smoke boom then
29: yay what gives good morning so this was not the flight of a mature operational vehicle the Starship launch that we saw yesterday was a planned step in an ongoing multi-year development and test program for as you said arguably the, the most powerful launch vehicle ever. So in in fact, that launch met its objectives. It provided data needed to advance the development of the vehicle. And it's interesting. The loss of that test article is quite consistent with SpaceX's approach to developing the Starship system. In, in designing and developing and testing complex hardware, you can use analysis and computer simulations to figure out what will work and what won't. And you can use physical tests in the real world. And SpaceX has been very hardware intensive in its development program, conducting many physical tests, as we very dramatically have seen.
13: So, Carissa, would it be fair to say that once it got off the ground and and flew a little bit, that if the cameras had shut off, I mean, that that would have been ideal in a weird way?
29: (laughs) I I, I actually think that SpaceX's... um, Visibility and transparency in its test process is a very Mm. positive thing. SpaceX does a good job at signaling and communicating where it is in the process.
13: So I mentioned earlier, NASA aims to use this rocket for its return to the moon and maybe, maybe, maybe Mars. So how does this test affect those plans?
29: This test is uh, uh, consistent with the planned test program. Now it's always great in a test if everything works flawlessly, That's an unrealistic expectation with a vehicle uh, this complex. But Mars, I mean, (laughs) just thinking about it, right? Well, so SpaceX talks about this rocket in the context of aspiring to change what humanity does in space. Mm. And SpaceX has already dominated launches of existing space activities with its Falcon 9 reusable launch vehicle. And reusability there was a big achievement. So you're not throwing the rocket away each launch you're reusing it. And so SpaceX's Falcon 9 vehicle contributed to lower prices, a faster launch cadence, and has helped attract investment in space ventures that use satellites and serve other, other existing space markets.
13: Carissa, for the next launch, for the next launch, do you think right now SpaceX is going to try to avoid this? What happened this last time for the next launch? Is that the next step?
29: I would anticipate that we would see a next, uh, next step of vehicle uh, performance and functionality, but I certainly would not say that uh, we, we won't see another test article uh, dramatically inc- and excitingly uh, disassemble. Space industry analyst and Bryce Tech CEO and founder, Carissa
13: Christensen. Carissa, thanks. Thank you so much.
11: So, A, did you get enough sleep last night? Okay, no, None Are you of kidding? Business. I work on
13: morning edition. Of course not.
11: Okay. None of my business. None of my business. Okay, well, chances are you're still doing better than the average northern elephant seal. These massive animals spend months migrating thousands of miles off the Pacific coast. And a nagging question has always been, when do they sleep? Now scientists have an answer. Here's science reporter Ari Daniel.
27: To study how northern elephant seals sleep, Jessica Kendall Bar first had to deal with how to measure their brain activity. So she started with a device used on birds and refined it on herself at a local surf spot.
22: Seeing how well I could waterproof those electrodes and record my own brain activity underwater, really channeling what it would be like to be a seal. <laughs>
27: Kendall Barr is an ecophysiologist at the Scripps Institution of Oceanography. Next, she went to Año Nuevo, California to deploy her instrument on wild elephant seals. She and her team sedated two young animals hauled out on the beach before wiring them up, putting them on a truck, and releasing them some 60 miles south in Monterey.
22: It's kind of like picking someone up and dropping them at the end of their driveway and being like, okay, let's see you find your way home. <laughs> so they'll get in the water and have this strong urge to come back to the colony. As
27: they made their trek back, the instrument recorded their brain waves and movements. The pattern was clear. They'd begin their dive. And then after a period of time, they'd start to nap, which began with slow wave sleep.
22: And then at some point they transitioned to REM sleep. Just like in humans, they seem to lose control of their body they flip upside down and they start this sleep spiral, like a falling leaf.
27: A blubbery falling leaf. Then five to 10 minutes later, they'd wake up and return to the surface. Kendall Barr compared these movements to data collected from a few hundred adult females over the last 20 years. And here's what she could conclude.
22: Elephant seals sleep two hours per day while diving for months at sea
27: which rivals the current record holder for shortest daily sleep time among mammals, the African elephant. This research is published in the journal Science. They've done an exceptional job. Chris McKnight is an ecophysiologist at the Sea Mammal Research Unit in Scotland and wasn't involved in the study. He says it would have been nice to see brain scans from more animals, but...
32: I think they've got as much as was probably physically possible. The new
27: research will help inform the habitat we safeguard, says Jessica Kendelbar.
22: Not only the areas that are really important for the animals to feed, but also those areas that they might go to to sleep.
27: Where you might find these animals sinking through the water motionless, adrift in sweet seal slumber. For NPR News, I'm Ari Daniel.
11: This is NPR News.
0: Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up in a couple minutes on Morning Edition, the latest research shows the risk of developing long COVID falls after a patient's first infection. It's 819.
24: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by PNC Bank, celebrating all who go above and beyond to give kids the best start in life. PNC is committed to early education. More at pncgrowupgreat.com.
1: On last week's Wait,
5: Wait, Alonzo Bowden offered some thoughts on paleontology. (laughs) Do you know how frustrating it would be to give a T-Rex with little arms lip gloss? (laughs) I'm Peter Sagal. This week we pitch Weird Al Yankovic in a parody of the theme from Jurassic Park. Sure, it has no words. That just means more possibilities. Join us for the news quiz
9: from NPR tomorrow at 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.
0: Berkeley College of Music will give honorary degrees to some legendary musicians this spring. The school says honorary doctorates will be given to R&B star Usher, singer Roberta Flack, and Gambian musician Sona Jabarte. Berkeley's commencement will be held next month. Mostly cloudy today with skies that will gradually clear. The high will be near 58. Tonight, clouds move back in and temperatures fall to a low around 45. Tomorrow, cloudy with a high back near 55. Showers likely on Sunday, maybe with a thunderstorm and a high near 54. It's 46 degrees in Boston at 821.
16: Support for NPR comes from this station and from Peacock with the new original series Mrs. Davis about the world's most powerful artificial intelligence and the nun devoted to destroying her. From Tara Hernandez and Damon Lindelof streaming now on Peacock. From Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. From the United States Postal Service, reinventing its network with shipping options designed to keep businesses moving forward. USPS, delivering for America. USPS.com slash movingforward. And from the Doris Duke Foundation.
11: This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Martinez.
13: As more and more people are repeatedly catching COVID-19, a big question emerges. Is the risk of developing long COVID the same with each new infection? NPR
23: health correspondent Rob Stein has been searching for answers even as the pandemic recedes one fear that keeps lots of people on edge is the danger that a case of covid will leave them suffering from brain fog disabling fatigue or a long list of other lingering health problems. The good news is that recent studies indicate that the chances of that happening appear to be far lower from second infections than from first infections. Daniel Ayubkhani has been looking into this at the Office of National Statistics in the United Kingdom.
18: Yes, it's true
33: that the risk of long COVID is significantly lower after a second infection than a first infection.
23: Ayub Khani bases that on the latest results from a big ongoing survey of people across the UK. About 4% of adults report symptoms of long COVID at least four weeks after their first infection. In contrast, only 2.4% of adults who didn't get long COVID after their first infection reported lingering symptoms after their second.
33: The risk is statistically significantly lower the second time round than the first time round of developing new onset long COVID, but that's still a
27: small risk it's not impossible to develop long COVID the second time if you didn't develop it the first time. I think that's the kind of key takeaway message from our study.
23: The research didn't examine why the risk would be lower the second time, but Ayab Khani says there may be several explanations. Maybe the immunity from the first infection reduces the risk. Maybe people who didn't get it the first time are just less prone to getting long COVID. Dr. Ziyad al-Ali at Washington University produced similar findings when he studied hundreds of thousands of patients treated by the U.S. Veterans Administration. He says maybe it's because the newer variants cause milder disease, which is less likely to leave people with lingering symptoms.
27: The virus itself has evolved to be milder over time. So when people got reinfected, they generally got reinfected with Omicron, which is certainly milder than Delta and milder than ancestral strain.
23: But Al-Ali cautions that even if the risk is lower, so many people are still catching the virus more than once that the total number of people left with long COVID continues to increase.
27: I sort of reckon it to a Russian roulette that the odds at the individual level, the odds of getting long COVID after the second infection versus the first is lower for any individual person. But that risk is not zero, meaning that at the population level, getting reinfection still contributed additional cases of long COVID in the community and at the population level.
23: And no one knows the risk from third or fourth infections. Rob Stein, NPR News. <laughs>
11: It's Friday, and here on Morning Edition, that means it's time for StoryCorps. In 1950, Shirley Duhart got polio. She was only two years old at the time, and although she struggled to walk, shoes became very important to her. She came to StoryCorps with Dale Strausser, her doctor for the past three decades.
33: I was raised in extreme poverty in Vine City, Georgia, and it was a segregated area at the time. But even though my mother worked long hours, the neighbors were very caring and looked out for us. And you dare not create a problem because you knew you were going to have to answer for it when your mother came home. But I think a lot of that also drove my independence Mm -hmm. to try to be as little of a problem as, as I could be. One day I was in the backyard playing, and all of a sudden I said, Mama, Mama, I can't walk. They realized it was polio, and she was very fearful. Because that was the pandemic of the time. When I was young, a little girl, I had the full-length iron brace, and I wore the high-top Oxfords. And those aren't real stylish shoes. Those are not stylish at all. They look like military boots almost. Then slowly, I improved some. And when I was in eighth grade, we bought some little pumps. A lot of the neighbors came out on the porch. So, oh, Shirley got on some dress shoes. It was kind of like big event because that was a close neighborhood. And how did that make you feel? It made me feel that I had a little bit of control over my situation, considering I couldn't control the fact that I did have that disease. Mm-hmm. I do remember from our very first encounter,
13: I suggested in a diplomatic manner that you really ought to consider some other shoes that would provide a little more balance. Well, I
33: heard in no uncertain terms that those shoes were not gonna be changed. And you heard me, and you probably my longest physician that I've had. I wanted people to see more than just my disability. Right. I wanted them to see a whole person and a stylish person, a person with a happy spirit. You know, I thought that we were all architects of our own life and all you need to do is just make up your mind and go for it. But since maybe 20 years ago, I'm not as mobile and all those little shoes <laughs> don't fit quite as well as they had before. But I know your personality. You're going to remain in charge. Oh, yes, that's the way I am. Don't let anybody else define you, define yourself. And, you know, I'm 74, but I hope to live to be 95, and I'm going to die in these shoes.
11: That's Shirley Duhart and Dale Strasser in Atlanta. Their StoryCorps interview is archived in the Library of Congress.
16: Major support for StoryCorps comes from Subaru with the 2023 Subaru Forester, featuring standard symmetrical all-wheel drive and safety technology. Love, it's what makes Subaru. Subaru. Learn more at Subaru.com. And from Dignity Memorial, helping families plan life celebrations now so their loved ones are protected later. Because nobody should have to plan for a loss while they're experiencing one. Learn more at DignityMemorial.com.
11: Cancer diagnoses can leave patients reeling, wondering how to react and how to live with the disease. Oncologists often tell patients to stick to their usual routines when going through cancer treatment. Tomorrow morning on Weekend Edition, you'll meet a plumber named Frank Marchand who's been following that advice for the past seven years. You can listen by asking your smart speaker to play your member station by name. This is NPR News.
0: Be sure to listen to Weekend Edition with Sharon Brody tomorrow morning. It starts at 8 here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR mobile app. Coming up in five minutes, how the delayed Supreme Court decision on the abortion pill Mifepristone is complicating patient care across the country. It's 829. A quick reminder, the WBUR app makes following the news all day easy. You can listen live, pause, and even rewind. That's the new WBUR app in your app store today.
5: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BassBerry and Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at BassBerry.com.
18: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. The Pentagon is preparing for the possible evacuation of U.S. embassy personnel from Sudan, where nearly a week of fighting has left more than 400 people dead. Additional American troops and equipment are being moved into the region. Mahassan Dahab says she and others in the capital continue to shelter in place.
22: People could not go to prayers due to the heavy artillery and and gunshots.
18: Dahab was speaking to the BBC. Sudan's military is fighting a paramilitary group for control of the country. Attempts at a ceasefire have been unsuccessful. Britain's Deputy Prime Minister Dominic Raab resigned today following an investigation into complaints about how Raab treated staff during his previous roles in the UK government. Here's NPR's Lauren Frayer.
30: Dominic Raab is accused of bullying
10: British civil servants who worked under him. An investigation into the matter landed on Prime Minister Rishi Sunak's desk yesterday. Sunak is said to have been weighing whether to fire his friend. Raab has seen the investigation against him and disputes it, calling it flawed, but has resigned anyway. He was Sunak's close friend and political ally, the UK's deputy prime minister and justice minister. So this is a blow to Sunak's government. Raab will leave the cabinet but remain a member of parliament in Sunak's Conservative Party.
0: Lauren Fryer, NPR News, London.
18: This is NPR News.
0: From WBOR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Commuters on the Worcester Regional Transit Authority won't have to pay fares until at least next year. The fare-free rides have been in place since March of 2020. And as WBOR's Andrea Perdomo-Hernandez reports, community members are hopeful the policy becomes permanent.
20: Worcester Zero Fair Coalition member and longtime WRTA writer Lynn Norris says the free fare program has made it
15: easier for her to get around.
19: Especially when it comes to picking up certain things like medicines and making appointments, it has helped me tremendously.
20: The WRTA is using federal COVID relief funds to cover the cost. State Senator Robin Kennedy says the program promotes equity and economic mobility. I'm hopeful that we're
21: going to continue
4: that momentum in the Senate to invest not only in Worcester and the WRTA, but in equitable investment in our RTA systems across the Commonwealth.
20: The Authorities Advisory Board voted Thursday to keep the program in place until June 2024. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Andrea Perdomo-Hernandez. The Massachusetts Attorney General is
0: calling on the Supreme Court to hear a case on restricting gun access for people with domestic violence convictions. Andrea Campbell and other state AGs want the high court to rule on a federal law that prevents people with domestic violence restraining orders from getting guns. A lower appeals court originally overturned the ruling, saying it violated the Second Amendment. The federal government is giving $27 million to projects across Massachusetts aimed at mitigating the effects of climate change. Nearly half of that money will go toward restoring the Herring River salt marsh in Wellfleet. The project covers 900 acres and is the largest of its kind in the Northeast. It's 833.
10: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, who believes auto and home insurance should be straightforward and works to assure their customers at every step. PlymouthRock.com slash WBUR.
0: The Celtics will try to take a commanding lead tonight in their playoff series against the Hawks. Boston leads Atlanta two games to none. It's also Game 3 tonight in the series between the Bruins and the Florida Panthers. That series is tied up at one game each. And the Red Sox are on the road tonight to play the Milwaukee Brewers. Skies gradually clear today for a sunny day with highs in the upper 50s. Tonight the clouds return and temperatures fall as low as the mid-40s. Tomorrow, overcast with a high in the mid-50s. Rain with a thunderstorm possible on Sunday will have high temperatures in the mid-50s. It's 47 degrees in Boston. At 8:34, you're with WBR.
16: Support for NPR comes from this station and from UMA a cloud-based phone service for any size business with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at umacom NPR. And from Indeed, committed to helping businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates. Businesses can invite candidates to apply, then schedule and conduct virtual interviews all in one place. Indeed.com NPR.
11: It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin in Washington, D.C. And i Martinez
13: in Culver City, California. The Supreme Court could decide before midnight tonight whether to allow an abortion pill to remain widely available.
11: So far, the justices have temporarily paused lower court rulings that would block or partially restrict access to Mifepristone. That's a drug now being used and more than half of abortions in the U.S. Kate Wells at
13: Michigan Radio is here to tell us about what's at stake in one state where abortion is still legal. Kate, uh, you're in Michigan. What are clinics uh, saying there?
20: It's chaos. I mean, doctors here have not experienced this much confusion or uncertainty really since last summer, since Roe was overturned. Especially since, you know, residents here in Michigan in November voted to put abortion rights in the state constitution. And yet, you know, even here, this method is still under threat. One of the doctors that I talked with is Dr. Audrey Lance. She's an OBGYN with Northland Family Planning outside Detroit. And she told me that every time in the last few weeks that one of these legal deadlines approaches, it is disruptive.
12: It's hard, you know, when I know that I'm going to walk into work tomorrow to provide care to patients with these medications. Am I allowed to do that? I don't know yet. I don't know what's going to happen.
20: And of course, what she wants to do is keep using mifepristone because when you combine it with misoprostol, that two drug combination is the gold standard of medication abortions. It is the most effective method. But if the court bans mifepristone entirely, it might also just restrict its use by not allowing it to be sent through the mail. And that especially is a big fear for doctors here.
13: But what's the biggest fear about losing the ability to send these pills directly to patients?
20: Well, I mean, Michigan is a large state. You know, if most brick-and-mortar clinics right now that provide abortion are concentrated in the southern part of the state, which means if you live farther north, if you're in the Upper Peninsula, you've got to drive for hours just to get to a clinic. But, of course, right now, these patients can get the pills remotely. Dr. Sarah Wallace with Planned Parenthood of Michigan, and she can do a virtual appointment with these patients and then send the pills directly to them through the mail.
22: We see patients who are in their car on break from their job. We see patients at home with their small children who don't have the ability to take time off work, to get childcare, to get gas money.
13: Okay, so okay, the option to mail mifepristone could disappear depending on the Supreme Court's decision, but could Misoprostil still be mailed?
20: Yes, they could definitely still use that medication rather than the two drug combination. And misoprostol alone is effective at ending pregnancies. But the doctors I spoke with say, you know, they're slightly worried about this because it is slightly less effective than when you use both pills. And they worry that this would mean more patients would need to come back in for surgical procedures afterwards. At bigger picture, they also just worry that if mifepristone isn't available, some patients just won't want to take the risk. They won't want to have a medication abortion. They will just opt for surgical procedures instead.
13: And can they handle the capacity for more of those?
20: Not at first. You know, it would be a big change. A lot of people right now use medication abortions. If a lot of them instead want to do an actual procedure, that could mean to longer wait times and and delays in care.
13: Michigan Radio's Kate Wells. Kate, thanks a lot.
20: You're welcome. We'll be right back. back.
11: Today, President Biden plans to sign a new executive order on environmental justice. The White House says the new directive makes it the mission of every federal agency to protect the environmental health of communities across the U.S. The move follows the passage of the country's historic climate legislation last summer and the White House's approval of the controversial Willow Drilling Project in Alaska. For more on this, I'm joined by White House National Climate Advisor Ali Izadi. Good morning. Good morning. So in clear terms, as briefly as you can, what does this order aim to do?
1: This order sees the intersecting issues of environmental injustice, racial injustice, economic injustice. And this is the president directing all of his agencies to tackle those intersecting issues, make sure that we're fielding a full team as we tackle the climate crisis, do it in a way that cuts consumer costs, creates good paying jobs, invests in communities that have been systematically disinvested in. That means building on things like turning our iconic yellow school buses uh, into vehicles that don't belch diesel pollution, tackling risks from lead pipes, getting all of those out across the country, putting methane pollution into the sky, cleaning up brown fields and super fun sites, turning them into hubs of economic activity planting trees in neighborhoods that have been redlined.
11: Talk to me about this new Office of Environmental Justice. This is going to be housed, I think, within the White House Council on Environmental Quality. It's being created under this order. Help me see this, like, what is the problem that this more centralized office will fix? In other words, like, what does it do that the executive branch isn't already doing?
1: two big things that we need to lean into further. First is to accelerate progress where we have data and science gaps. We don't fully understand how things like the cumulative burdens from various pollution stressors impact public health and environmental justice. We need to accelerate progress with our scientific agencies and collect data around that so we can do a better job of addressing those issues. The other part is making sure that in addition to coordinating uh, action across the federal agencies, we are making uh, uh, accountability and transparency part of uh, that program. That's what this office will do, make sure there's a scorecard uh, that can be viewed Mm -hmm. by the public that shows the progress we're making, uh, whether it's at the Health and Human Services Department of Labor or the EPA, Mm
11: Okay. So the order comes weeks after the president approved a 30-year drilling project in Alaska, despite his earlier pledge not to approve new oil projects on federal land. Does his approval of that project weaken the impact of this order?
1: This order is a historic step forward. It builds on the largest investments in environmental justice that we've ever seen in this country, the largest investments in remediation, in tackling legacy pollution. It's also builds on the president's commitment to tackling the climate crisis uh, with the largest uh, ever program to do that, built on this premise that we can invest in America to make the solutions here, get them to every zip code in the country.
11: I got it. Before we let you go, congressional Republicans want to repeal much of that signature climate bill, the Inflation Reduction Act, as part of their negotiations over the debt ceiling as briefly as you can. How worried are you about that?
1: I'm just surprised that you would want to have Congress spend time on a measure that would raise the costs of energy for consumers, um, that you would want to have Congress spend time on something that would undermine U.S. manufacturing competitiveness, undermine U.S. energy security, sideline our workers uh, in the global clean energy race. So look, the, the president's economic agenda has attracted hundreds of billions of dollars of capital into this fight um, and uh, we're focused on on delivering results.
11: Ali Zadie is the White House's national climate advisor thank you thanks so much. This is NPR News.
0: Coming up at 845 on Morning Edition, we preview what's supposed to be the largest gathering ever of Satanists. It's happening in Boston next week. In your forecast, skies clear for a sunny day today in the upper 50s. It may reach 70 around Worcester. Some clouds return tonight. It'll be in the mid-40s, cloudy tomorrow in the mid-50s. Sunday, rain with a thunderstorm possible in the mid-50s. It's 47 degrees in Boston at 843.
24: WBUR supporters include BMW. With a range of up to 301 miles, the BMW i4 is 100% electric and 100% BMW. The first all-electric BMW i4 is available at your local BMW centers.
0: Airbnb says it'll help hosts in Massachusetts save on energy costs while also reducing their carbon footprints. The vacation rental company is doing so by helping hosts access up to $10,000 in rebates. Those will go toward upgrades on heat pumps and weatherization for their homes. Boston-based Simply Safe is hiring 100 new employees as it expands its downtown office space. The expansion comes just 3 months after Simply Safe laid off more than 50 people as it shut down its warehouse in Taunton. It's 844,
10: we're funded by you our listeners and by Vertex, committed to making a difference in biotech to create and deliver innovative therapies for people with serious diseases. Career opportunities at vrtx.com.
6: This
0: is Wars Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. A big convention at the Marriott in Copley Square next week is getting a lot of coverage in conservative media. It's called SatanCon, and it's being put on by the Satanic Temple, headquartered in Salem. The group says it'll be the largest gathering ever of Satanists. I visited the temple to learn more. There are still bubbles in the paint on the porch from an arson attack last year.
7: You can see the final siding that was damaged and kind of we're working on over here.
0: That's temple manager Melissa Gurr.
17: Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you.
0: Dex Dehardine is the spokesman and ordained minister for the temple.
7: Salem has interesting symbolism, of course, being the seat of the only real witch trials the, the United States has ever seen. Reclaiming this space as a you know place for heretics to not only live but thrive, I think it's a beautiful thing. There's a gift shop full of satanic
0: temple merchandise. A smaller room houses a huge statue of Baphomet.
16: Speak of the devil, here is our full-size Baphomet monument.
0: A winged goat-headed figure long associated with Satanism.
16: He weighs three tons and the floor had to be reinforced so that he could be in here.
0: Upstairs, books and artifacts detail the history of the satanic panic in the 1980s, when conspiracy theorists made baseless claims about satanic cults ritually abusing children. DeHardin says the threats have never stopped.
7: I've just assumed for years now that I'll be just walking along and someone's gonna come up and shoot me in the chest.
0: Another room houses a display of torture devices and two throne chairs on a raised platform. Uh, What's the purpose of having a throne? It's just fun.
7: <laughs> We're a religion that we take ourselves very seriously in some regards, and then in other regards, we like to have a good time.
0: De Hardine and I sit on an old sofa in a back room on the first floor to talk more.
7: This is our sort of fine arts room.
0: He says the Satanic Temple is non-theistic and doesn't believe in a literal Satan. Instead, he says they focus on teaching compassion and intellectualism, and on fighting for freedom of religion and speech. One example, they're suing the city of Boston for the right to be able to give an invocation before a city council meeting. DeHardin says, like any other faith, they started having conventions last year so members could get to know one another.
7: It's a chance for our community to build friendships, to learn from each other. We have over 800 attendees scheduled to come to this year's SatanCon. We have the Satanic Ball one day. We have Madeline Hatter, a drag queen, who's gonna do a performance, and then the band Satanic Planet's going to be doing a concert after that.
0: You're having it at Copley Square, a very high-profile area.
7: They were one of the few hotels willing to work with us. It's very hard to find collaborators for anything we do. Sometimes because of the name and superstition or religious, you know, beliefs, and they just don't want to work with us. Other people that might otherwise work with us are afraid. They're afraid of bomb threats. They're afraid of physical attacks. They're afraid of negative reviews.
0: To talk about the protest groups, they say, don't be fooled by this organization that says it's about free speech or intellectualism. This is anti-Christian and an opening for people to explore Satanism and actually get into Satan. How do you respond to that?
7: They're a little bit off the mark. We are Satanists. Now, the thing is, we're not theistic. And I always like to point out to people that Christianity doesn't have a monopoly on the name of Satan. Not all of us come from this background of there's a devil and he's the personification of pure evil.
0: Another big criticism is that you're just out to shock people. So how do you respond to that?
7: There is a shocking element, obviously, to some of what we do. If you're from a Christian background and our statue makes you think of the literal devil, you will be shocked to see it in public. But that's not the point. We're just saying we're here, we're Satanists, and we're going to live publicly and unashamedly. The 90% you don't see is our congregations, it's our ministry program, it's our weekly temple services.
0: Just why is it worth it when, as you said, hate crimes are up? Attacks are up, shootings are up. Is the fear and the danger worth
16: it?
7: Absolutely. We know that there's movements in this country right now that are trying to take away voting rights. They're trying to restrict the kinds of relationships you can have, what you can read at school, what you can say as a teacher. And you have to push back, and it's risky. It's always risky to fight for civil rights. We've seen this with every civil rights fight there's been in this country. Dex
0: Desjardins, spokesman for the Satanic Temple, thank you so much for talking.
7: Thank you so much for talking to me.
0: Coming up in the next few minutes, crucial Internet cables sit on the ocean floor and span the globe, but they aren't well protected. The Marketplace Morning Report tells us about the race underway to find a solution to that problem. It's 849.
5: Th- We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Chapel Hill Chauncey Hall School, Waltham, where students in grades 7 through 12 achieve their best. Open House, April 23rd, chch.org chch.org/openhouse. open mm-hmm. house.
15: It's Coachella season, and of course, Bad Bunny is headlining. He just dropped a single with the band Grupo Frontera, who are known for Mexican regional music, a genre with roots that go back 150 years. And now, it's topping music charts.
4: We're talking about all of the world. This is really a watershed moment for the genre.
15: Hear that on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today, starting at 4 on
0: 90.9 WBUR. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Friday morning. The Supreme Court today is expected to decide on access to the abortion pill Mifepristone. The Pentagon is preparing for the evacuation of U.S. citizens from Sudan amid fighting there between militant groups. And Governor Healy has appointed a former T. General Manager as the new chair of the MBTA Board of Directors. The BBC will have the top global headlines in 10 minutes and stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR, on the WBUR mobile app and at WBUR.org.
10: WBOR supporters include Complex Stories, working to turn big ideas into compelling videos, online experiences, presentations,
0: reports, infographics, and more. Complexstories.com. We start out with clouds this morning, but those are supposed to gradually move away for a sunny day in the upper 50s by this afternoon. Tonight, mid-40s, and a few clouds move back in. Tomorrow, overcast in mid-50s, and it looks like a rainy Sunday with a chance for a thunderstorm and temperatures in the mid-50s. It's 47 degrees in Boston at 851.
32: Spring has sprung. Home sales
34: have not. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Palo Alto Networks. Palo Alto Networks delivers what's next in cybersecurity innovation to protect today's digital way of life. Learn more at paloaltonetworks.com. And by Fidelity, a dedicated Fidelity advisor can help create a wealth plan for a full financial picture. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC.
32: From Marketplace, I'm Sabri Benishore, in for David Brancaccio. Home sales usually surge in the spring, but not this year. Sales of existing homes were down in three out of four regions in the U.S. last month, according to the National Association of Realtors. Marketplace's Nancy Marshall-Genzer is here to talk about what is happening in housing. Hi, Nancy. Good morning. So just how much have home sales fallen?
30: The National Association of Realtors says sales of existing homes were down 22% last month from the same time last year, Sabri. The only place where home sales didn't fall was in the Northeast. So sales were down in the Midwest, South, and
32: West. What's behind that? I mean, why are home sales actually falling during what is normally the busiest time of the year
30: Well, mortgage rates rose last week for the first time in over a month that certainly didn't help Uh, Freddie Mac says the average rate for a 30-year mortgage is now six point three nine percent and Freddie Mac says the housing market just won't get back to normal until rates drop into the mid 5 percent range
32: what about home prices how are we doing there
30: As those mortgage rates rise, demand falls, and of course that's pushed housing prices down with the median home price in March at more than $375,000. But prices are still increasing in some parts of the country that are adding jobs. There are more homes on the market because houses are taking longer to sell, but construction on new homes
32: fell last month. All right. Thank you, Nancy, so much. You're welcome. All right, let's do the numbers the FTSE in London is up a tenth of a percent. S&P and NASDAQ futures are down in the one to three tenths percent range. Dow futures are up about one tenth of a percent, 18 points. The yield on the 10-year treasury is 3.531%.
34: Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Amazon Business. From small business to big enterprise and everything in between, Amazon Business helps simplify the supplies buying process. Amazon Business, your partner for smart business buying. And by The Uncertain Hour, investigates the privatization of welfare and how for-profit companies cash in on public benefits. Listen to The Uncertain Hour
32: wherever you get your podcasts. The geostrategic rivalry between the U.S. and China touches national security and economics, and both of those are at play in a somewhat unseen arena, where the two are competing, under the sea, specifically undersea cables that sit on the ocean floor and digitally connect continents. Reuters recently published an extensive report on how the U.S. and China are facing off over who should build those cables and where they should connect to land. The cables cost upward of a half a billion dollars to construct, and they're financed often by groups of big tech companies, Amazon, Google, Meta, China Mobile. Per Reuters, the U.S. government has intervened using the threat of sanctions to ensure some of those cables were not built by Chinese companies and did not make landfall in Hong Kong. James Kraskat is a professor of international maritime law at the U.S. Naval War College and joins us to talk about why this is an area of such intense, if unpublicized, competition. Marketplace uh, Professor Kraska, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, my pleasure. Can you just remind us why undersea internet cables are so important to the global economy and basically modern life in general? Uh, Yes, absolutely. These are
6: the backbone for the global information system, the global information network, and they carry about 99% of all our telecommunications because satellite doesn't have the bandwidth and it costs too much. And so almost all of our communications, and this includes uh, banking transactions, all of our internet activities go via submarine cables. And because it's a globalized world and the economy is interconnected, these have never been more important.
32: Well, so if there was some sort of international conflict or, or something, are there rules that protect these cables? Very minimal rules. The rules
6: were developed during the era of copper cables, and they only pertain to connecting bilateral cables, connecting one country to another country. And the problem today is that submarine cables are fiber optic. They are constructed through a consortia of companies, and these consortia will sublease part of their bandwidth to even other companies. And so there's no such thing really as a bilateral submarine cable that's used by civilians today. Furthermore, all of these cables have both civilian traffic as well as military traffic, because the military traffic is encrypted, but it still goes on the same cables that we use every day for our internet.
32: Are these cables protected somehow? I mean, if there was a conflict, say, between the US and China, what would it mean if they weren't protected?
6: There's just not a lot of black letter law that applies except that in armed conflict military objectives are are lawful maybe lawful military targets so any sort of attack or disruption on them has to be weighed against uh, distinction are you able to distinguish between a military target and a civilian target in this case it's sort of a dual use uh, item uh, dual use infrastructure and then proportionality even if it is a military target, is your attack disproportionate? And these are questions that have not been answered because we've you know, not not had uh, much experience with cutting cables during armed conflict uh, in the present day.
32: Yeah, it sounds like this is a, a major vulnerability.
6: It is a major vulnerability, but if you think of a country, for example, like China, it's also much more connected to the globalized economy. Any type of disruption could have uh, reverberate follow-on effects. And so it's one of these measures that might have just as much blowback effect on the country cutting the cable as it does on the country that, uh, that's supposed to be you know, targeted.
32: James Kraska is chair of the Stockton Center for International Law at the U.S. Naval War College, where he teaches about international maritime law. Professor Kraska, thank you so much.
6: My pleasure. Thank you.
32: Our executive producer is Kelly Silvera. Our digital producer is Jarrett Dang. Our engineers are Jessen Dooler and Nick Esposito. In New York, I'm Sabri Beneshore with the Marketplace Morning Report. From APM, American Public Media.
10: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Muzzin Audio, offering high-fidelity FM Bluetooth audio speakers in an array of nostalgic designs and colors. Available at muzzinaudio.com and summer term at Boston University. Advance your studies with more than 700 courses in over 70 subjects ranging from business, math, and sciences to humanities, languages, communication, and more. For summer term dates and to register, visit bu.edu slash summer.
1: I'm Morning Edition executive producer Dan Guzman. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.